Big Adventures with Brian Durker is brought to you by Humphrey Summit Ski. Humphrey Summit Ski has been supplying Flagstaff and the surrounding area with quality ski and snowboard equipment for the last 40 years. They offer service, repairs, boot fitting, and more, all from the friendliest staff in Arizona. On the corner of Beaver and Elm and in Grand Canyon Spirits on Humphrey Street in Flagstaff. Hello, Big Adventures, here with Brian Durker. And, uh, you know, this world has some selfless people and the people on the front line of this COVID thing. Oh, so many people depict that, what I'd call heroism. It's amazing, their dedication to their fellow man. And uh, my next guest is definitely one of those in spades. He's uh, Bull Durham, Dr. John Durham. He's a hand specialist, surgical specialist. But he's got such a great story about what he's dedicated his life to in regards to responding to catastrophes like Haiti or stepping up and really making a difference as far as uh, testing and administering the shots for this COVID thing. And so I'm really happy to have John here. He's a real dedicated, interesting fellow that I'm sure you guys will really appreciate what he's all about. It's a great chance for us to really see what a dedicated medical expert is. And uh, I welcome John. And I really am excited you guys are all here listening to this. So sit down, get real comfortable, and uh, let's, let's sit in with John Bull Durham. Thanks for being here. Brian, thanks for asking. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, where did you grow up? I grew up what in, do we got? I grew up in Maine, uh, right in the center part of the state. Uh-huh. In a little town called Monson, a town of about 800 people. Oh, nice. And um, we were actually the town that people in other towns came to go shopping at. So <clears throat> 800 was a pretty good size for the towns around us. Was it coastal or in interior Maine? Right in the center of the state, just below oh, okay. Moosehead Lake. Oh, okay. Yeah. I've heard of that. Moosehead, my, yeah. my family ran a furniture factory in our hometown, Moosehead Manufacturing. It started by my grandfather. My father ran it for years. My cousins all worked in it. Oh, cool. And so they were building furniture? Yeah. Oh, it cool start, started off making, uh, my grandfather, I think, had about 25 folks when he started it in the mid-40s. And then <clears throat> by the time my uh, father passed away, I think there were 200 employees and two separate plants in two different towns. So it wow, so a big, pretty good-sized good operation size. then. Yeah, yeah, one of the bigger employers in the county, in the county actually. Uh-huh. Yeah. And you went to high school there? and Foxcroft Academy. Uh, which was just a community high school. Uh-huh. Yeah, it was built by a fellow by the name of Louis Oakes. Uh, interesting stories for another time. But Sir Louis Oakes um, built the the academy and called it Foxcroft Academy. Uh-huh. And uh, was it just boys or girls or No, it was, a, it was a high school for— It was basically— yeah, it was just a high school. High school. It was the local high school, yeah. All kinds of questions, of course. You, you were— a, Excellent student, had the choice of any of the organizations that 
followed, right? <laughs> well, I know, well, no. I mean, uh, <laughs> uh, I applied to a number of schools. My grandfather had gone to Dartmouth, and he really wanted me to go. Oh. So I applied to Dartmouth and did not get into Dartmouth, and my grandfather wrote them a nice letter and said, you'll no longer be receiving any funds from John Durham. <laughs> <laughs> so you got another letter? Or? <laughs> yeah. So, uh, and my dad had gone to Middlebury College, and I got into Middlebury College, so that's where I went after I left, left Maine. And those are all old Eastern established yeah, uh, yeah. Little, la- little, landmarks. Little, little Ivy. Uh-huh. schools, yeah. And uh, you stayed, you, did you get an undergrad there? Or? Yep, four years in Middlebury. And uh-huh. um, then got uh, accepted into University of Vermont uh, College of Medicine after that. And <clears throat> between college and medical school, I went up to Alaska for the summer, but ended up staying for uh, about a year and a half. Um, so I delayed my entrance into medical school while I was fishing up in Alaska. Nice. Were you a uh, professor, or, you know, fishing for an outfit? And I was commercially work, fishing working or? on a, um, a processing boat most of the time. Oh, wow. But also fishing with a friend of mine who was doing some commercial halibut fishing. And which is the greatest fish. I, I, love, I love halibut. Yeah, yeah. Halibut's the yeah. best eating fish yeah, in the world. Awesome. But that's a pretty cool adventure then, getting getting out and about. And uh, what part of Alaska were you in? Place called Yakutat. Yeah, Yakutat's right where the uh, main part of Alaska comes in and meets uh, southeast Alaska. Right, right in that little armpit. Yakutat. Yeah. No. Yeah. And uh, and then you came back down and you went to the University of Virginia for medical for, school. University of Vermont. Or Vermont, Vermont excuse yep. me. Yeah. Well, it was a great school. Um, I, re- I really, you know, I love Vermont. I love Maine. So is is that a very big school? Um, it's a pretty good size. I don't think it's the size of uh, uh, NAU, but uh, it's a pretty good size school. And the uh, state of Maine had a deal with UVM because Maine did not have its own medical school, so uh-huh. made it easy for us folks to get into it. Um, I was there for five years. Um, it took me five years to go through. Uh, I took a year a year off uh, in the middle of my med school and did some work over in South India. Oh wow! Um, and traveled through North India and then did some research out in Washington State for six months. Um, so I split my schooling up just a what little. What kind bit. of research? Um, I, I was doing some work with a, a relatively famous orthopedic surgeon out there who was doing some research into foot fractures. So I was studying foot fractures, calcaneus fractures. Oh, wow. Um, and it, it, at the time, I was trying to get into an orthopedic program. And, and my my interests prior to that had been in internal medicine and pulmonary medicine. I thought I'd go into high-altitude research. I was uh, pretty involved with uh, wilderness medicine and high-altitude. Um, oh, wow. Yeah, good. People in the high-altitude research areas during med school. But then i fell in love with orthopedics. So while scrambling to get back into an orthopedic program, I did some work with this guy out in Seattle. What was uh, what was East India like or South, South what, India? So, South India. <clears throat> uh, was that a neat experience? It had to have been. Uh, that was a you know, game changer for me. Um, you, know, I, you know, I'm a uh, small town boy from Maine. And when I went to Alaska, Brian, you know, it was the kind of thing that um, I thought, well, this is the kind of thing that people do if, you know, if you're part of National Geographic, right? I mean, that's 
um, how backwoods I was. And so traveling to India, it was the first time I'd been out of the country. Oh, yeah, uh, that's exciting stuff. Incredible experience. I worked with the native populations in South India, providing health care to them as a medical student. Oh, cool. Um, and so that was my first experience in um, doing... Uh, you know, providing medical care in a developing country. Well, I'll bet, I'll bet that uh, there was a tremendous need for that over there. You, yeah, no you question. Had, you had plenty of work to do, huh? Yeah, no, it was a, it was a busy time. And then, so you came back, finished medical school, and uh, what, how, what on earth brought you to Flagstaff? I was looking for a ski town, and uh, when I, um, I, I went through. Um, uh, residency in orthopedics, and then uh, an extra year of training in hand surgery. In 1991-92, with uh, twin boys, Lisa and I started looking around for a place that we wanted to live. Um, and we came to Flagstaff and uh, took a look at the town. I fell in love with it right away, and as we left town, Lisa said it would take wild horses to drag her to Flagstaff, Arizona. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, you always wonder about those... Chasing those dreams, yeah, you know, it's yeah. not always a complete picture for everybody. Well, we were we were here on a, a pretty uh, gray winter day when we interviewed. Uh, but, we, you know, within six months of being here, she had fallen in love with the place. Uh-huh. It's be, certainly become home for both of us. Well, you're, you're, you're a great member of the community here, that's for sure. And so then, did you have a private practice when you first came here? I joined the Northern Arizona Orthopedics. Orthopedics, yeah. So, so you came Mer- into that job. Right. So Merrill and Mickey Abbasaus, Don Hales, and Roman Lewicki. And I yeah. Was, I was number five, so. Right. Well, yeah. I have a right knee that Roman there you go. Uh, put back together, <laughs> uh, ACL, PCO, media collateral, yeah. and he put it all together with my patella. And I've never had any problems with it since. Yeah, was, that was back. You guys do good work. That was the back in the day, there were just seven of us in town. And, and back in the day mm-hmm. when they just went ahead and opened that knee up. Yeah. You know, but no doubt. Uh, mine would have been opened up either way. It was a pretty big mess. Then kind of go into what we've seen, your growth and uh, and the development of that orthopedic surgery in Flagstaff. Because uh, I've always said it's the hospital that ate the small western town because it's a big, substantial group. But can you kind of explain the progression of uh, what you have seen in growth there? In, in terms of the orthopedic community? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So when I came to town, there were seven of us, and obviously over the years, uh, and I came to town as a hand surgeon. I'd been trained as a hand surgeon, but at that point in time, really the only way to build a practice was to do everything. So right. I was doing hips and knees like everybody else. And over time, as more people came in, more specialties came in, we had sports surgeons and foot surgeons and total joint surgeons, and we've expanded to the point that you know the two, the two big groups in town – I don't know how many we had at the at you know at the time that I left prior to the the recent changes that have occurred, but um, you know there were probably fifteen of us or so at the time that I then left to go up to Tuba City to work. What year did you go to Tuba City? Uh, just past my third year, or so two thousand eighteen. Yeah, so it's been three years already. Huh? Yeah, and uh, can you kind of tell the listeners uh, kind of what's going on in Tuba City? As far as uh, the health world and the the 
it's always been an interesting thing. It serves a tremendous amount of countryside. I know that. But kind of explain the Tuba City group. Well, you know, Tuba City has, uh, um, I'm sure most people know, it's got a hospital that has operating rooms and beds. I think we have 64, 70 beds, something like that. It's um, it's a place where some really very interesting people work. Uh, it's not a place that everybody can go to work. So people make a choice to go work in Tuba City, and it's a fascinating group of people and a very talented group of medical providers, very impressive group of medical providers, I would say. Yeah, through the years, I've known a lot of people that have been, you know, done that, and they're all interesting, dedicated people. Right, um, they, are, they are, and they're well-trained, they're well and uh, that, that has really become evident. I knew that before, but uh, it, it has become even more evident to me through the whole COVID process. Yeah. Obviously, the last year has been an incredibly difficult time for, for the world, for Arizona, for Flagstaff. And as you've heard, the natives, um, uh, Native Americans have suffered hugely uh, with COVID. Yeah, per uh, capita, quite, quite a startling. Yeah. For, for a long time, we were number one in the world in terms of rates of Instant, COVID. yeah. Not numbers, it's a smaller population, but the rates were very high. And there are many reasons for that. But to see the the healthcare providers up there turn around their practices. I mean, you know, I'm a hand surgeon, and all of a sudden I'm out vaccinating people. Yeah, on the rural reservation. Standing out in the high school parking lot giving injections or helping to make gowns for the so the 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 providers up in Tuba have did an amazing job of preparing us and their um, patients for the COVID crisis has just been impressive. I think they've been ahead of um, Arizona, the nation, and perhaps even the world in terms of some of the stuff that they're doing. Right. And it's, it's uh, rurality. It's so rural that it's a, it's a pretty tricky to get a canvas over that population out there because it's spread near and far and it's people live in tight traditional ways, and uh, it, it must be a tremendous challenge. It's, it, it's a huge challenge, especially in a place where, uh, the, you know, the numbers have been quoted 40 to 50 percent of the population doesn't have electricity or running water. And yeah. so how do, you, how do you get information out to them in terms of uh, how they can protect themselves from this pandemic? So mm-hmm. it's been a huge challenge, but uh, one that's been answered by the providers and the, and the um, administrative people uh, up in Tuba, and I think they're doing a whale of a job. Yeah, no, it sure seems to be. I was lucky enough to tour around there a little bit and uh, kind of got a little bit of a, a grasp of the enormity of the of the need out there in the project. And um, you, you and I were chatting earlier about vaccinations. Yeah, and <clears throat> it's. Um, I I think we're getting close to about twenty five percent of the population being vaccinated up there. Is that right? Um, which which is, is far ahead of the rest of the population. I'm, I'm guessing it's pretty close to being the number one percentage in the world. Now, we're a small population. It's not like we have millions of people. Now, have you guys struggled with availability of the drug or, or, or the vaccine? Uh, 
or are you getting to a point to where you can keep up with your distribution? We seem to be getting the vaccine uh, pretty readily. Now, I'm not involved in that process per se, uh-huh. uh, but you know, this past weekend I was up there vaccinating. I think we vaccinated close to 2,000 people, and we That's still tremendous. had still have vaccine left over, and we've got three or four more vaccine blitzes lined up for the next week or so. So Now, I have a question about the vaccines. Now, I know the Pfizer has to be kept in this incredibly cold uh, storage environment. Right. The, the, the Pfizer has to be kept somewhere, I think, between minus 60 and minus 70 degrees. Yeah. And so those are special freezers that most places don't have. We do have one or two up in Tuba right now. Uh, one of which we got from Johns Hopkins, I believe. And they've been tremendously a big presence out there in this effort, haven't they, uh, yeah. John Hopkins? Well, and for years. They've been yeah. out there for years. A partner yeah. for years. Yeah. with them. So you'll, you are uh, giving both vaccines we are. out up there? Yeah. We had the Pfizer uh, two days after it was approved. Oh, really? Yeah. So you were like first tier? Because there was a lot of press as far as the... A number of people that were affected, and so that's good to hear that you guys had a priority. Yeah, we, we we got well, and part of that was the um, um, is a credit to the Tuba City providers and the epi- epidemic response team that went uh-huh. out and, and grabbed it. I mean, not all places in Arizona went out and said, "Hey, we want the Pfizer." Some weren't prepared to do the vaccinations and needed to wait for the Moderna to come out before they had the ability to. And how many, uh, I've always been fascinated with the number of medical professionals out there. Like uh, if you made a guess throughout the whole Hopi and Navajo reservation, how many professionals are out there? Or or let's start with Tuba City. It's a large group. It's a large group. I think Tuba has... Oh, gosh, Brian. Um, 120 to 150 providers, I uh-huh. think. Yeah, that's yeah. that's good. Yeah. And I don't, I don't have a concept for the other facilities, although it's interesting. I had the opportunity to go to several of them this past year, exchanging gowns and caps and gloves and masks uh, through the crisis. And there are some pretty large facilities. Shiprock's got a big Ch- facility. Chin Lee's Chin a pretty Lee. good one. Yeah, and yeah. I... I uh, I saw those facilities as well on my little tour out there. Yeah. So, and everybody was on game. I was really impressed with all the professional people out there. Yeah, it's an impressive group of people. Yeah, out there, no question. Now, uh, with this conversation with the with the tribe, I'd like to uh, touch into Haiti. For the listener, John's been really dedicated. What year was the catastrophe? The January twelfth, two thousand ten. January. 12, 2010, John's been incredibly involved with helping that country rebuild and, and provide for the need needs of a really decimated bunch of people. But can you kind of explain the history that you've been involved with in Haiti? And then I'd like to get back to the COVID conversation. Sure. So I've joined a group called Northern Arizona Volunteer Medical Corps. It's been around since the mid-'90s. Burt McKinnon and Kelly Reber started the organization back then. Uh-huh. They would go to a country where there, uh, the, there was a group of people that did not have access to any surgical care. And so we would go down for two weeks at a time, do a bunch of surgeries, mm-hmm. um, and then come home, and then a year or two later do the same thing. And it was a it was a 
fabulous group of people. They did some tremendous work. I was very proud to be part of doing some of that. Um, in 2007, I got interested in switching the focus a little bit into the teaching how to fish as opposed to bringing fish in hopes of um, giving the organization some sustainability and our effect in the country. Yeah, you know? great. 2007, 8, 9, we ended up going down to uh, going over to Mongolia uh, with fire. Actually, um, we joined Meredith over there um, and did uh, two weeks of surgical care treatments and teaching with the residents in the um, in Ulan in Ulaanbaatar. Mm. Uh, in the capital city. Wow, now there's a big adventure right there. <clears throat> oh, it was fabulous. And I I loved going to Mongolia, and my team loved going there. It was a, just an amazing place to go. And Flagstaff has got so many other connections to yeah. Mongolia that it was fun to... And did you run into Dave Edwards down there or any of those guys? Uh, no, I, I never did. Obviously, Meredith, uh, yeah. who, who do, Meredith Potts, who does the work for FIRE, which is right. David's group. So uh, we worked closely with her, and she's done some fabulous work. Yeah, uh, no, her name just comes a, up here and there. And incredible. It was great. Yeah, I'm, I'm honored to know her. She's just a fabulous person. Uh-huh. I was planning the trip for 2010, and we were planning to go back for another two weeks when the earthquake occurred uh, in Haiti. And um, I'd always been interested in disaster relief. And after several phone calls and waiting several weeks, we we got, gosh, we got, Brian, we got word on, I think, um, a Friday from this group called Medishare out of Miami. And they said, yeah, we'll take you. Um, put together a group. We'll be happy to have you. We'll take as many people as you want to bring. And within a week... I had 35 people. Oh, is that right? Up and they left their jobs, left their families, bought their own tickets, paid their own way, and we joined this group called MediShare and flew to Miami, where we spent a week working in a, a tent hospital at the airport in Port-au-Prince. Oh, right at the airport. Right on the tarmac. Yeah. Was, MediShare was one of the first boots on the ground. They were there about 24 hours after the quake and set up. Uh, by the time we got there, there were four big tents that were set up. Uh, they were they had 200, 250 patients uh, in the tent at any one time. Uh, 200 volunteers that, were, that turned over every week. Uh-huh. Um, so we were part of that group. With, with almost probably everything under the sun in regards to what they needed. As far oh, as yeah. I mean, injuries and... and then this is uh, the most impoverished country in the Western Hemisphere. Yeah. Um, that now has had the worst disaster, natural disaster, that uh, we've ever seen before. In memory, yeah. You know, two to 300,000 people dead, two to three million people out of homes in, Puerto, in, in one small area. I mean, so it wasn't spread across a country. This was in a city. I mean, it was just... It was wild. It must have been unbelievable to get there that soon with all the chaos and with all the tragedy. Yeah, it was a, you know, obviously it was a game changer for me. Yeah, Um, that would be life. Ended ended up going back 44 times after that. Has it really been 42? Yeah. Wow. But it it was a really challenging time, especially that first trip. I think a lot of the volunteers in that first trip, maybe even this, we had three teams go down within four months of the earthquake. Uh-huh. Within three months of the earthquake, actually. Uh, and I think the first, maybe the first two trips was um, 
really difficult for a lot of people. And I think there uh, there are people who really had some PTSD after that and who really oh, have I think been, so. not been able to go back since. I knew some, some of the group yeah. that went down there, and there was uh, some really horrific uh, impact, I think, that yeah. that had on, on quite a few people. Yeah, yeah it, was, it was a really tough period of time. On the second trip, we were down in February, and I went back with a team in March. And because I'd been there before, I got to be the chief medical officer for the hospital for the second week. Um, and so I was in charge of um, helping work with the uh, physicians in the in the facility in terms of who's going to get an ICU bed. We had the only four ventilators uh, in the country uh, at our tent hospital. And so we, decisions were being made in terms of who's going to live, who's going to die. Yeah, no, those, those have just to be just terrific. tough, horrific it, decisions. Yes. We had um, seven or eight kids in the PEDS intensive care unit that week when I first arrived. We had a full uh, pediatric team from Seattle there. And I'm talking pediatric intensivists, nurses, respiratory therapists, the whole gamut. And at the end of the week, those eight kids were all dead. And eight other kids were in there. Unbelievable. Well, which is a horrible thing. High impact. Yeah. And for, for our teams Tragedy. to see that, that was really the thing that I think stimulated many of us to say, what else can we do? Yeah, what, what can uh, we do? What can we do to help? Was there a predominant injury you saw with the kids? Or was it just everything? No, it was just everything. Yeah. Yeah, there were, I mean, there were multiple fractures and open wounds. And, uh, and from building collapses. Yeah. And was that most of it, building collapses that injured early, people? Early on it was. And one of the problems that we were seeing was you have a healthcare system that already um, has significant um, lacks in, in many ways. It's yeah. compromised in many ways. And 90, 95% of Haitians do not have access to medical care to begin with. And then you put on top of that an earthquake with uh, this kind of... Uh, perfect storm. A perfect storm. And so there's no ability to take care of the ongoing trauma, the motor vehicle accidents, the kids getting hit uh, by cars, kids falling out of trees, the stuff that goes on naturally is just compounding. The and then as that went along, uh, the pathogen problem or the, the sanitation problem and all that other stuff kind of follows these events, doesn't it? To where that's another big issue as far as getting clean water. And, and that getting... was, and certainly that was an, uh, an issue even before the yeah. earthquake. And, you know, it wasn't two or three years after the earthquake that cholera became a problem. In well, Haiti, that's what I was leading at. Which yeah. hadn't been a problem before. And then, uh, in 2016, um, Hurricane Matthew comes through, and uh, you've got, uh, you know, just I one, remember one disaster. <laughs> that's after right. Another. It was just the one thing after another yeah. and after another. Uh, are you planning on going down there again? I, I hope very much to go back this year. Um, I don't know that I'll take a team down this year. That may wait till January. Uh -huh, <laughs> because, the, and, and uh, back to COVID, uh what is this situation and scenario with with COVID? Is is it a pretty high rate down there, or 
I the the real answer is I don't know. Um, I hear mixed things. We have two girls that uh, we call our daughters who lived with us here in Flag for seven or eight years. Uh huh. And we put them through Northern Arizona University. Yeah, no, have, I remember that. They have mm-hmm. since returned. So, I talk to them once a week. Uh, I talk to my friend Dr. Hippolyte who lives down there and the people that run the hospital in which we work. And it's mixed. Uh, some. Some people say that they're seeing a fair amount of COVID, and other people say they're not seeing hardly any. Uh, my suspicion is that the rates are not as high. And uh, talking to a friend of mine who's a orthopedic surgeon down there uh, from Loma Linda University, he's been living down there for a year now. Um, his theory is that you know most people in Haiti don't live to be 65, and so they don't have that patient at risk population that we have. Oh, interesting. Yeah. If you're, if you're really sick in Haiti, you're already dead because you don't have the health care. You don't have the health care. Now, um, another thing that, uh, I know that you have been a force in is, uh, you started a orphanage or can you tell us a little bit about what you've done down there with, with, the, with sure. the kids in the orphanage. Sure. There's an orphanage that um, actually uh, we didn't start, but we started to support. Um, when we came back from those trips in 2010, we wanted to do something for the kids in Haiti. We had that event down at the Orpheum, and we raised right. about $60,000 in May of 2010. And uh, Kelly Reber and I, we traveled through different parts of Port-au-Prince, uh, and uh, that southern part of Haiti to find a place to put our money. We looked at a number of different orphanages, and we stumbled across to one of which was Renman Orphanage, and that's the orphanage that we continue today uh, to support. It had been up and running for 10 years before we got oh, there, okay. um, <clears throat> and we were just looking for some place to help out. And so since that, uh, since that time, we have been funding the education of the kids at the orphanage, there are about 50 kids that we put through school up through high school, and we've had, I think, 12 or 13 kids now graduate from post-secondary educations. We've got five nurses, uh, three of whom are working currently, two of whom just graduated two weeks ago. We've got a girl in med school. We've got. Uh, are, are you bringing them to the states for the no, med they're, school? They're being, Is there a medical school in Haiti? Oh yeah. Yeah, no. These kids are all being, save for the two girls that are our our daughters. Um, all these other kids are educated in Haiti, and our our emphasis really is to give the kids something to hope for. But when I first went down to Redmond Orphanage in 2011 and spent time with these kids down there, you know, you'd ask these older girls. What do you want to do? And everybody would shrug because there's... Yeah, know, where, where are what the do you dreams mean? there? We're yeah. going to leave and go out in the streets and do whatever. Uh, if you go down now, every single one of the kids, even the young kids, will tell you, I want to be a doctor, I want to be a nurse. And that all came because NABMC yeah. has given the opportunity. They've seen the older kids grow up and go to law school, go to med school, go to nursing school. They've seen, seen people just like them succeed. Yes, and, uh, in their country. That's a noble business yeah. you're in. Well, um, it's, I'm happy that we've been able to do that. Yeah, it's no, that's incredible. And how, how big is this orphanage that you're supporting? About 50 kids in one 50 time. kids in yep. there. And they, there's probably a line trying to get into that orphanage, or how do they, how do, they do that? 
as far as... Well, you know, orphanages are a bit of a controversial thing, uh, and even so in in, uh, in Haiti. I think that some, some of the kids are indeed orphans. They have no families. Their family gets killed in a car accident. A child gets left off in the front steps of the orphanage, and they bring the child in. Other kids are brought in because family members can't take care of them. Um, right. They just can't throw right. So they, their parents may be alive, um, and, but their family can't take care of them, so they bring them in and ask that they be taken care of. Uh-huh. And, and of course, there's the flow through there to where some kids are kind of leaving and they yeah. get to a certain age. And... Yeah. Well, and luckily, when they're leaving now, every kid who leaves the orphanage in the last 10 years has been offered the opportunity to go to a post-secondary uh, education of some kind. And, and uh, offered in the realm of actually being... Uh, funded, funded funded by us. Yep. Yeah. Well, and we're from... tremendous. From a plumbing... A guy that did three years of, in plumbing school to a gal who's in medical school right now. And that that's just fantastic. And do you have your eye on the progress there? How How is Haiti doing... In general, uh, uh, are you hopeful with what you're seeing as far as... I mean, they already had such poverty before the thing, so you're only going to maybe get to a certain point. Uh, what yeah, do you see? Uh, yeah, what do you, you see know, as far I as see, the I see. I work on the micro level. You know, <laughs> right. I'm not a mover and a shaker with uh, you're not you know, the, huge influences down there. Yeah. Um, you know, Sean, Sean Penn's got... You know, way more ability to do that sort of thing than I have. And you've seen the work that he's yeah. Doing. They've got they've got a presence down there, don't yeah, they? Yeah. Well, so we work on the micro level, and uh, the way I see it, you know, like two weeks ago, uh, things were really bad up in the reservation, uh, up on the Navajo Nation. People were dying, and the rates were going high, and we were cutting back on what we were doing. And in the midst of that, I get a video sent to me from one of my daughters of these two kids graduating nursing school in Haiti. And so that's, you know, that's the micro that we see. The other micro that I see, are, you know, the other thing that we do at the hospital in, in Port-au-Prince is train. Yeah. We're really working on trying to train the orthopedic residents, give them the opportunity to operate, um, show them some techniques. We learn some techniques from them because they have to do stuff with less, and so we learn lots. But uh, that collaboration has resulted in helping to support the creation of orthopedic surgeons down there that are extremely talented. Uh, and so to go down there and work with my buddy Hippolyte or to get a, an email from him and say, hey, look, this is a case I did last week, and to see the quality of the work and how that has improved, and I think in part because of what we've been able to do, that's the micro that yeah. we can, we can but, support. But that's the thing that you can... Walk away with a heartful feeling right. when you see successes yeah. in, in that individual and stuff like that. No question. Now, tell us about the uh, your girl. How's she doing? She's doing great. Um, she's, uh, for the listener, John has a a, a daughter uh, that came with back with him from Haiti. But tell tell us a little bit about that. So, in gosh, what year was it? Um, She's been with us for seven years. We got we started um, working on the adoption when she was two, so sometime around 2011, I think 2011, 12. Yeah, my uh, Lisa, right. Lisa, my wife was down in uh, Haiti working at the orphanage, and 
while there met this girl, Annabelle, who was two years old, and she was not walking or talking at that time. She had been, a, uh, she'd been abandoned um, and brought to the orphanage after being taken to a hospital for several months. And uh, they fell in love, and Lisa came home and said, let's adopt a little girl from Haiti. And I said, let's get a dog. <laughs> a cat, a cat, you know, a bird, whatever, <laughs> and uh, and she was quite adamant. And I said, "Well, you give it two weeks, and if at the end of two weeks you really want to do that, then we will." And uh, you know, the rest. She's is, a beautiful rest girl. Is history. I have no regrets about it. But at the age, that age, I was not. Well, uh, you're ready. A, as busy as you are. I can't even <laughs> imagine. You know, it'd be like. Doing that myself would be a, a big breach. To be 62 and have an 11-year-old is a, can be a challenge. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, what's really cool for the listener, John, there's skiers. I mean, what a great day she had when your wife walked in the door. Yeah, I mean, yeah. uh, the opportunities and the, and the love. Well, it's it's been great on, on both ends. I mean, she does as much for me as, as I've done for her. Oh, she's a beautiful she's girl. She's yeah. changed my life and... Uh, love her to pieces. I have a lot of fun skiing with her, and so she's uh, eleven or twelve 11, now. 11, yeah, yeah, yeah. She's learning how to kiteboard now. Oh, it did. yeah, you were saying something <laughs> about kiteboarding. <laughs> you know, that's a that's an unpredictable sport. There. Yeah, there's a lot to that kiteboarding. Yeah, so what do you, what have you got in mind for the future here as far as what you're doing on the reservation? Are, are you guys just going to keep sticking to it until 100% are vaccinated and then monitor or what? what, what? Yeah, you know, it, it's a little bit hard to know what the future holds with the, with the virus itself. The, um, you know, one of the interesting things is the, um, the Native American population gets it. There's nobody out there. There are very few people out there that are saying, oh, this is a hoax or this is somebody um, trying to pull the wool over Fake our news. Eyes. Fake news. I mean, uh, and so they get it. I mean, everybody up there has lost multiple family members. They've seen death. They've seen sickness. They've been sick. They've been in the hospital. And they know it's real. So everybody wants the vaccine. And I think the numbers I heard at one point were about 90, 95% of them have agreed that they will get the vaccine. So with that, I mean, I think that— Well, that's a big help, having oh, that sort huge. of— yeah, Good, good yeah. on them. Salute them for that. And if we're able to get that done in the next couple months where we can get 70, 80 percent vaccinated, then perhaps we'll hit the herd immunity before the virus starts to morph into something that requires another round of vaccine. And that, yeah. I think that's the big concern. The big scare, yeah. Yeah, everywhere. So. And uh, are, are we seeing any of those new strains in the state? I I don't know. I don't know that it's we're doing the genetic studies. It's kind of hard to identify studies. it, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, you have to be doing the genetic studies of the virus. And I don't. I know we're not doing them on uh, uh, up in Tuba, at least not that I'm aware of. And I don't know that we're doing them in Arizona. Yeah. Uh, but clearly those are going to be um, a problem um, unless we can get the vaccine into people quick enough to... to, to uh, I guess it's to starve it. Hold that back, yeah. To starve them. Yeah. You know, what I worry about is uh, people get their shots and they start feeling invincible again and and they let down their guard because you can still carry it and shed it even though you're not going to get the symptoms from it. Uh, 
Yeah, at least, at least and I really worry that. about that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I do too, and we, we don't know the answer to that question actually. Um, but I think there is some concern that we could be spreading the virus, even though uh, we have been vaccinated. So that question, I think, is unanswered at this point. Yeah, uh, yeah, we do need to. We still need to be um, careful for a period of time until we get to the point that we've had some kind of herd immunity. Um, yeah, yeah, several months ahead of us. And so are you still uh, pretty much full-time out there in Tuba, or, or what's your work uh, load? When I started out there, Brian, three years ago, I went up three-quarter time. Uh-huh. So I had more time for the family and for NAVMC. Uh, and <clears throat> last year in March, when COVID hit, I went on full-time for about oh, six or seven months uh-huh. uh, to kind of help through that. Uh, time where the virus was at its peak up there, uh, and I'm back to three quarter time now. So oh, roughly three days. So we time. could go skiing sometime. We can definitely do that. We um, might have a little girl with us if that's. Uh, no, I would love to. <laughs> I would love to ski with her. I'd have a ball doing that. So let's set that. It'd be fun. And I've, you know, I've, I look forward to it. Um, there is a really cool thing that uh, a problem, as I recall, that you addressed in in regards to the uh, protective stuff for the for the ma- medical staff. Tell us how you got that problem solved. It was so in garments, wasn't it? It was so in. It was. Uh, tell tell us that. I mean, the listener would be interested to hear how how uh, resourceful you are. So when when I. When I came, I was on vacation around the time that uh, COVID became a real problem out here. Yeah. And I came back and went up to work at Tuba City, and pretty quickly it became evident that PPE, the uh, personal equipment, was going to be a problem, the personal protective equipment. And you guys all remember those stories from a year ago that everybody was looking for. Oh, yeah. It was awful. The thing that was lacking the most... Uh, on the different nations, the Navajo, Hopi, Zuni, and Apache nations were gowns. We couldn't get gowns. In fact, a lot of the disposable gowns that we used were made in Wuhan. Uh, and clearly, we weren't getting any from them at that point. Yeah. Um, and so they, somebody came to me up there and said, hey, well, you got any thoughts about what we can do about gowns? And I said, well, sure, let's use cloth gowns. Um they can and be washed. They and, can be washed and reused. And um, and so uh, any Northern Arizona Volunteer uh, Medical Corps, with the financial support of the community donors, uh, the um, Flagstaff Community uh, Foundation uh, was incredible uh, help to us. I think we got some grants through United Way. Uh, Molly Brown, our executive director at the time, did a lot of amazing work to help us through this. And Long, long story short, in the course of about six months' time, we had um, somewhere between seven and 9,000 reusable cloth gowns across the four nations. Unreal. Um, and and we're, you, we're still using them. And you had all different sources of, of people sewing them? Well, the, the, um, the three main sources, we got some from a group down in Phoenix, there's a group down there that was sewing gowns for other hospitals, and we got the patterns for the gowns from them. We learned a lot about what kind of fabric one needs to make a certain level gown so that you're making a gown that provides the appropriate level of protection for yeah. whatever you happen to be yeah, using it for. Yeah. There was a group, wonderful group in town threaded together that 
worked with us. We provided um, the uh, materials and paid them to make gowns for us. And then there was a wonderful group of uh, dentists and dental workers up in Tuba City. And within two weeks of starting the project, the whole dental team had moved into the Mormon church up in Tuba City, and we'd converted their gymnasium into a factory of gowns. Unbelievable. Um, That's so great. The, den- dental, the dental team made uh, made gowns. It was absolutely fabulous. And we Ka- distributed them everywhere. Shiprock, Chinle, Gallup, Kayenta, Hopi. It, it sounds a lot like what, you know, our grandparents called the war effort, you know, right. where the all people contributed in one way or another to... To the cause, right, it's fantastic. Right. No, it was it was a great, great thing to be part of. Great effort. A lot of a lot of amazing people came together to do that, and that's the beauty of these kinds of things, right? You meet some just wonderful people that um, you work with on on these projects, and yeah, and you're one of them. But <laughs> that's no doubt about it. But it's wonderful to hear the results of your dedication and stuff, and it makes it all the better having you here today. With that, how much hope do we have with with getting rid of this this damn COVID? I mean, what if you were a, just a guessing guy? Is it going to take years and years and years? Is it? I mean, the, of course, this solution right now is getting your shot. But uh, what do you, what's your gut feeling about how this thing will go? Well, and again, I'm a hand surgeon, so uh, my, I'm not an expert in any way. But, I mean, from what I've seen, I, I, I see two uh, possible paths. Um, one would be that we get enough people uh, who agree to get the vaccine. We get that out quickly enough that the variants don't have a, the opportunity to morph into something that takes over and we have to revaccinate everybody. Right. And I'm hoping that that's the path. And I don't think this is going away, but I think that it will become something that we can manage and we can face moving forward. Uh, in the other path I see, and, and that's the path I think is going to happen. I'm, I'm very hope. I'm very hopeful that Biden is really going to be able to um, help bring us the financial support, the guidance, and the infrastructure to move uh, all of this forward because we've been lacking that. Um, the other possibility is that not enough people get vaccinated or it rolls out slowly enough that this thing morphs into something different and, you know, we do this dance again for a yeah. year. And yeah. uh, I would, I don't, you know, from a financial standpoint, from a from a head standpoint, right? I mean, we're all going to go stir crazy if we have to do this again. Oh, so. good, goodness. We've got to somehow avoid it. And, and, and to my listener, I'm sure you're, you're all sitting there with hand spray, your mask on, you're at distance, and you're taking this as seriously as we are. I hope so. I hope so, too. Um, and just one last question, because you're a hand surgeon, and I think that's a fascinating detail if you really look at surgery. There's so many things going on in a hand. It's a it's a fascinating piece of anatomy. And, and that's what drew you to that special specialty? Yeah, I think so. Even in medical, medical school, the thing that I loved the most was anatomy. Uh-huh. Um, and then and then it was orthopedic anatomy, the structure of the arms and the limbs. And then the hand is such an intricate piece of equipment. It's just, it's fascinating. It's, it is uh, truly amazing how 
how well it works yeah. and how it, it has adapted to function. And uh, It's one of the first things that we use to um, integrate our environment with us. Yeah. And so it's a really important sensory organ. What is your most common hand surgery? Um, probably carpal tunnels. Yeah. Carpal tunnels and wrist fractures, probably the two most common. Uh-huh, yeah, because people fall, they put their arm out, they break, do. Their, break their wrist. Got lots of ice up here. Yeah, it's slippery. <laughs> I hate to admit it, but I've actually fallen down on the ice myself. <laughs> like 150 times. <laughs> well, I can't thank you enough for the time you spent with us here today. Uh, you guys, thanks for sitting with us today and getting to know John Durham just a little bit. But also, uh, you know, what I'm getting out of this conversation is that maybe there's some more stuff I could do to help the cause. And I'm going to think about that. And I think all of you are, are probably as inspired as I am, you know, to, to be around somebody that is, has so much dedication to his fellow man and stuff like that. But I, I salute you and I thank you. Well, Brian, thanks for having me. And to you guys, stay right side up, keep the mask on, and I look forward to the next visit. Uh, take care. Big Adventures is produced by Brian Durker, Margaret Knight, and me, Gavin Bugner. Bill Gleckler and his mandolin provide our music. If you like our show, please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. 